Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. I have no one to blame but myself, but I've bitten off a lot this morning. Four chapters of text. I hope that those of you who are regularly a part of this church have taken my counsel at the beginning of this series and have read the chapters that um, were assigned for the week. You can always find that in the bulletin or on the website and come prepared for what is here. I certainly will not be able to cover all that is contained in these four chapters. I'm very mindful on Labor Day weekend that there are a number of guests here um, who have not been tracking with us in our study of 1 Samuel. I will do my best to help you not feel left out of this story and to understand what is before us. It's not only a long passage, it's a hard passage. There are some heavy truths here. Four chapters, three of them are full of sobering truths. I ask that you endure with me through those because although there are hard words in chapters 4, 5, and 6, there are very happy words in chapter 7 that await us. As we begin, I want to ask a question. Our passage has a number of questions that it poses to the readers. I want to begin with a question as well. What is the biggest problem that faces humanity the biggest problem could it be the political turmoil or the economic uncertainty in our nation maybe the wars that are raging in our world is it sickness and disease The sickness and disease that we pray for week in and week out, but even beyond that in our world. Or is it even death? All of these are serious problems. But are any one of these the biggest problem that we face? The Bible gives a different answer. It gives an answer that... I am pretty sure will surprise some of you this morning. The biggest problem that we face as humanity is God. Let that sink in for a moment. Not sin, that maybe was the thing that came into your mind first, and the effects of sin... The biggest problem that faces humanity is God, namely, His judgment on our sin. Our passage draws this out very clearly this morning, but it is the consistent witness of all of the Scriptures. Our passage this morning tells the story of the exile and return of the Ark of the Covenant of God. 
It is exiled from Israel into Philistia, and then it returns to Israel. But as the ark travels, God wreaks havoc on everyone, everywhere the ark goes. We should not be surprised to know that the Lord wreaks havoc on the Philistines. They're one of the main characters in here. After all, they're the enemies of God and His people. But God also wreaks havoc on His people, Israel. When the ark finally arrives back in Israel toward the end of chapter 6, Israel herself is afflicted with plague. And the people of Beth Shemesh ask the key question of the passage. The question before us this morning, who is able to stand before the Lord, the Holy God? Who is able to stand? You see, Israel thought they were safe and secure because they were God's chosen nation. But they presumed upon God's favor. We see this throughout the Bible. I could mention so many texts that I thought of this week. But the bigger thing I want to draw out for our purposes this morning is we see this even today in the church. There are many people in the church who would call themselves Christians that think that because they are in the church, because they have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, or as they say, accepted Jesus into their heart at some point in the past, that they are safe and secure. Our passage before us warns us against such presumption. I'm reminded of what Paul said to the Corinthians as he was reminding them of the history of Israel. He said, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. All of the examples in the Old Testament of Israel's unfaithfulness come to bear upon us today. He goes on to say, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. Who's able to stand before the Lord? The Holy God. That's the question at the end of chapter 6. Thank God That's not the end of the story. Thank God there is a really good answer to that question. There are two key words in our passage that I hope and pray will orient you to these four chapters. The first, you may make note of this, is the word glory. It comes from the Hebrew word kabod. You may want to write that down. K-A-B-O-D. Kabod. 
It literally means wait. But it's often translated as glory. That's why I've called my sermon the gravity of God's glory. God's glory is the weight of all that He is. It is the center of gravity of His attributes. It is the weight of His attributes of love and mercy. But it is also the summary of His attributes of wrath and justice. The other key word in this passage is the word hand. What we see in this passage, these two words go together, is God's hand is working to shine forth His glory in both judgment and in salvation. His glorious hand is heavy against some. It brings them down. But His hand helps others and lifts them up. So the question before us as we dive into this text is who does God bring down? And who does God lift up? And thankfully, there's a good answer to that second question. I don't have time to read all four chapters clearly. Not even most of what is contained in these chapters. So I would ask that you keep your Bibles open on your lap. I will be pointing you to critical verses along the way in this story. Let's begin with our first question. Who does God bring down? My answer is simple. God defeats the rebellious. God defeats or brings down the rebellious. Or put another way, His hand is heavy against the rebellious. There are three groups of people that are brought down in this passage. For simplicity's sake, the first group is found in chapter 4, our first chapter. The second group is found in chapter 5. And the third group in chapter 6. So let's begin with the first group of people the Lord brings down in chapter 4. And look with me at verses 1 to 3. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The major question of chapter 4, and really the question that hangs over the first three chapters, why has the Lord defeated us today? You see, The Israelites have good theology. They understand that it's the Lord who is behind this defeat. It's not chance. 
God's hand is at work. But they don't understand why. Why is that? They should understand why. For the last 200 years, you can read about this in the book of Judges, God has been giving His people over to their enemies for one reason. Because of their sin. And in the book of Judges, when God's people are handed over to their enemies because of their sin, they cry out to God and He delivers them. But that's not happening here. Israel doesn't know why they've been defeated. Come on. But more importantly, they don't cry out to the God who can deliver them. Instead, they think that if they bring the ark into the battle, that they'll win the battle. The ark is called the Ark of the Covenant because it represented the covenant relationship between God and His people, Israel. There are two things, if I can be really simple with what the ark represented. It represented God's promise to them to be present among them. Remember in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle set up, the glory of the Lord descends upon the Ark of the Covenant. He will be present gloriously with His people in power. But it also represented their promise to God to be faithful to Him, which was represented in the Ten Commandments, were encased within the Ark of the Covenant. So God has made promises to His people represented in the ark. And that's why they think if we just bring the ark into the battle, we will win. Long story short, it didn't work. They cart the ark out into the battle and they're decimated. Look at verses 10 and 11. There was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, mind you, these are the two guys carrying the ark, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So the question asked at the beginning before they brought the ark out remains after they brought the ark out and were defeated a second time. Why has the Lord defeated us? today? The answer comes through a play on words. Our first key word, kavod. After Israel's final defeat, after the ark is captured and Hophni and Phinehas die, report goes out and chapter 4 records how this report was received by two people. The first is Eli the second is Phineas's wife. I want to focus on her first and then go back to Eli. She actually dies in childbirth. Actually, both people that hear the report die. She dies in childbirth, but before she dies, she names her son Ichabod. Listen closely to that word. Ichabod. Ichabod literally means where is the glory? 
Look at verse 21. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. So the ark's captured. She names her son Ichabod. Where's the glory? God's glory has departed. It's another way of her saying, Why has the Lord defeated us today? And the answer to her question is found in the other use of the word kabod in this chapter. Look back at verse 18. The man comes and makes his report to Eli, and we read, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. That last word's critical. Why did he fall over and die? Because he was old and heavy. The word is kabod. What does it mean? Why was Israel defeated? Because their leaders did not give adequate gravity to the glory of God. All of the weight, all of the glory that belonged to God was around Eli's waist. His sons didn't give adequate gravity to God's glory. They took advantage of women at the gate of the temple, as we saw last week. They stole the portions of fat from the people bringing their offerings, and they fed themselves on that fat. Eli was supposed to rebuke his sons, but instead he's benefiting from their sin and unfaithfulness. He's getting fat on the fat that they stole. His kabod, his weight, was proof that he didn't honor God's kabod. His glory. And so the glorious God who is enthroned on the cherubim of the ark brought Eli down from his throne, from his seat, just as he promised he would do two times in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. The Lord kept his promise, <laughs> his promise to judge people who are supposed to be serving God, but instead are serving themselves. The first group the Lord brings down is ungodly leaders. The people of Israel were seeking to claim God's promises through bringing out the ark, but they had broken their promises to God. They were not keeping God's word. They were rebellious. Their rebellion is epitomized in Hophni and Phinehas and, and Eli, but they themselves were really no different. And so the Lord brings these ungodly leaders down. Chapter 4 closes with the question, where's the glory? Let's begin this next section with that question. Where is it? Is the gravity of God's glory gone after this defeat in chapter 4? I don't think so. 
The second group that the Lord brings down is the Philistines and their false gods. The first part of chapter 5 is very humorous. In the middle of chapter 4, the Philistines were afraid that if the ark of God came into the camp, they may be defeated like the Egyptians were in an earlier point in history. But now that they've defeated Israel and captured the ark, they do what Goliath will do later on in the story. They defy God. They bring the ark to Ashdod and put it in the house of their main god, Dagon. They think that they've captured Israel's god and now the ark, which represents the god of Israel, will be subservient to their god, Dagon. It's a battle of the gods and they believe that their God has won. But notice what we read in verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Poor Dagon had fallen and he couldn't get up. Just like Eli had fallen, now Dagon had fallen. But notice what the text tells us. He had fallen down face downward. The false god (laughs) is bowing down before the ark of the one true God. And friends, get this right now. One day, Every knee will bow. One day, every knee will bow. Better to bow down today than wait for that day. Happened a second time. Um, They prop him up and then the next morning it's the same thing. Only this time we read that his head and his hands have fallen off. There's our second key word. Hand. And notice it gets picked up again in verse 6, which is a summary of what has happened so far. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So the hands of their gods were broken. Now the hand of the Lord is heavy against them. The hand of the Lord is kabod against them the heavy gravity of God's glory was at work in judging the Philistines and their false gods so the people of Ashdod send the ark away literally they let it go they send it to Gath the same thing happens at Gath I just want you to notice this repetition look at verse 9 the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great Panic, same language used in Exodus 14 when the chariots all came into a panic. They were drowned in the Red Sea. A great, very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they let the ark go to Ekron. The same thing happened. Oh, I, I repeated verse 9. 
Verse 11, there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. So, three locations. The Lord's hand is heavy. He afflicts the people and they have these tumors. There's this plague that takes place. Eventually in chapter 6, the priests give the people of Ekron counsel. They say, don't just keep shuffling this around to different cities. Send the thing back home. Let it go. Back to Israel. And I want you to notice something critical in their rationale for sending it back. In verse 5, they tell the people to send it back with gifts. And then they say, give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps He will lighten His hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After He had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? They tell them to give glory to God, kabod to God. God's hand had been heavy against them. They need to recognize the gravity of the glory of God. God is behind what is going on. They need to recognize this. That's what they should do. What they shouldn't do is harden their hearts like the Egyptian. You won't be surprised at this point to learn that the word harden is kavod. Their hearts should not remain heavy with rebellion. They should give the weight that God deserves to Him and His glory. You see, God has a history of bringing down the rebellious, ungodly leaders, idolatrous nations who oppose Him and His people. He did that in this situation. He did it in Egypt. Do you see all the parallels with Egypt here? It's really remarkable. As the people of God go into exile in Egypt, it seems like they're defeated, right? But what does God do while His people are in Israel? He brings a war against the gods of Egypt. He's victorious over them. What happens when the ark is defeated in exile in Philistia? God brings down the false gods in Philistia. The plagues are so bad in both places that they send the people back. Sound familiar? And not only that, they send them with gifts of gold. This is the way our God works. This is the gravity of God's glory. It's unstoppable. Friends, this is not just a story about ancient Israel. This is the very story of the Gospel. Think of the cross. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, didn't everybody think He was defeated? But it's while He was on that cross that He brought down the enemies of sin and death and then rose on the third day victorious over the grave. This is the God 
that Israel was supposed to worship and to serve. At the end of chapter 6, we see the Philistines crying out to heaven. (laughs) It's like you would think the people of Israel would be doing that, knowing what God had done for them, that they would confess their sins and cry out to God. But they didn't. And that leads us to the third group that the Lord brings down. And now the text is meddling with us. The Lord brings down those who presume upon God. In the second half of chapter 6, there's a major surprise. The Philistines send the ark back to Israel. It arrives at Beth Shemesh. I wish I could talk about the cows and all that's going on there. I don't have time. I simply want to draw your attention to a major surprise. When the ark arrives, the people rejoice, verse 13, but they very quickly move from joy to grief. The glory had departed in chapter 4. It had returned in chapter 6, but not in the way that they were expecting. The Lord's hand had been heavy against the Philistines. In three cities, we're told three times, He struck them. Now the ark returns to Israel, and we're told three times that the Lord strikes Israel. Look at verses 19 to 20. He struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall He go up away from us? The people of God are afflicted just like the enemies of God, the Philistines. And now, just like the Philistines, instead of repenting, instead of crying out to God, they simply send the ark to another town. This time to Kiriath-Jerim. So the question remains, why has the Lord defeated us? Why did the Lord afflict them? Because they have presumed upon the Lord. They think that simply because they are Israelites, they should be safe. After all, they're the covenant people of God. Just because the Ark of the Covenant has returned to their land, they should be secure, right? They presume upon the promises of God while they remain in rebellion to God not keeping the promises that they made to Him in the covenant. They will not remain faithful. Why do I say that? Because while they are worshiping God through the offerings they make, through what they're saying, they are at the very same time worshiping idols. This comes out a little bit later in chapter 7. We get close insight into what was happening with them. They're worshiping God while at the same time worshiping idols. 
And when they're defeated by God, yet again, they still don't acknowledge their sin. They still don't cry out to God. They simply send the ark away. They are presuming upon their religion, specifically being a part of the true religion, but they are not in right relationship with the one true God, which would be marked by faith and repentance. And until they repent, they will remain under the wrath of God. Rebels defeated by God under His heavy hand. Presuming upon God's favor is a recurrent theme throughout all of redemptive history and it is alive and well today in the church. How many in the church want to claim the promises of God without keeping the promises that they have made to God? How many want to claim forgiveness and eternal life without actually surrendering their life to Christ? How many want to claim attendance in a church? Not just any church, but a Bible-believing church gospel-centered church? How many want to claim the heritage of their Christian family or their diploma from a Christian school but have no desire to take up their cross and follow after Jesus? Who does God bring down? God defeats the rebellious. His hand is heavy upon them. Whether ungodly leaders, ungodly nations, pagan idol worshipers, or people who live their life squarely within the covenant community of God, but really know nothing of true faith and repentance the biggest problem facing rebellious humanity is God do you feel the gravity of this reality thankfully it's not the end of the story it's in a sense simply a prelude to the real story of redemption. God not only brings down the rebellious, He also lifts up. The question is, who does the Lord lift up? Thankfully, there's a good answer to that question. And here it is. God delivers the repentant. His hand helps them. He lifts them up. In verse 7, I mean chapter 7, verse 2, we see a shift that takes place in this story. A glorious shift. From the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. I think this verse should be translated slightly different. 
a long time passed, some 20 years, then all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. For 20 years, Israel remained in rebellion, and then finally, they mourned after the Lord. For 20 years, they lived under the oppression of the Philistines, but then finally, they saw that God's hand was against them because of their sin, and they were ready to repent. And it's their repentance that led to their deliverance. This comes out in the verses that follow. But they needed help with their repentance. So the Lord sent them Samuel. Did you notice that Samuel's been nowhere to be found in chapters 4, 5, or 6? But he shows up now and he is the one who leads a very critical change within this story. He helps them to repent in two ways, by serving as their prophet and as their priest. The two things that we need today as well if we are going to respond rightly. First, we need a prophet to preach to us. Samuel's ministry helped them to know what repentance looked like through a very short sermon. Maybe you wish mine was this short. Look at verse 3. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. There's the command in the sermon. Here's the promise. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Here He tells them how they will be delivered through repentance. And true repentance involves returning to the Lord. See, there's something interesting in this passage. Although the ark had returned to Israel, the ark of God had returned to Israel, the people of God had not yet returned to God. But now they do. But repentance involves turning to the Lord. Not only that, it involves putting away your false gods. There is only one true God, and the gravity of His glory demands wholehearted devotion. Not just with your actions, but with your heart. You can't give undue weight to false gods. And we have a lot of them in our day. You can't give undue weight to your accomplishments, to your work, to your school, to your sports. To your sports, to your friends, to your family. God must be heavier than all of these things, even very good things. He must take first place. You certainly can't continue to love your sin more than God. Not that we won't continue to struggle with sin, but we don't continue to give more weight to our sin and rebellion than we do to following hard after Jesus. You must glory in your Redeemer. He's heavier to you 
than all else. You must say, I have no longings for another. I am satisfied in Christ alone. That's what repentance looks like. A task that we are called to do again and again, day after day. To turn from our sins, to worship the one true and living God. Samuel served as this prophet. He preached God's Word. He told them how to repent. And they did. In verse 4, the people put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. We too need to hear God's Word and do it. But we also need a priest who will pray for us. We've been waiting throughout this whole narrative for Israel to cry out to God. And here they finally do it. In verse 5, Samuel gathers Israel at Mizpah to pray to the Lord for them. There they finally confess their sins in verse 6. And when the Philistines come up against them, they say, Pray for us that the Lord may save us. Do you see the change? At the beginning they say, Bring out the ark that it may save us. Now they say, Pray to God. Cry out to God for us that He may save us. And so Samuel does. In addition to that, he also offered a sacrifice to God, a right sacrifice, unlike the priests in Eli's house. And look what happens. <laughs> Crying out to God, offering a sacrifice, and in verse 10, while that's happening, the Philistines drew near to attack, but God. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. How's the victory won? Through repentance. Through a sacrifice that was made on their behalf. It turns the whole story from being defeated by the Philistines to being delivered from the Philistines. Their rebellion has given way to repentance and so now they stand in relationship differently than they did before. No longer in relationship to God according to wrath, but now in relationship with God according to His grace. At the beginning of the story, Phineas's wife names her child Ichabod a summary of the defeat. The glory has departed. At the end of this story, Samuel names a stone Ebenezer. He says this, For till now, the Lord has helped us. The heavy hand of the Lord that was against them is now the helping hand that lifts them. Their biggest problem was God. We must be truthful on this. And so doesn't it make sense that the only solution to their problem was also Friends, that's why God sent His Son 
to save us. For only God can save us. Jesus, both fully God, to deal with our sins, both fully God and fully man, only He can bring us back into right relationship with God. He is the perfect prophet. Long ago and at many times, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken through His Son. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, following that, how much closer ought we to pay attention to what we've heard? We've heard the Gospel. We should surely believe it and continue in it till the end. Jesus is also the priest we need who not only lives to make intercession for us, who not only offers a sacrifice up for us, but who gave His life as that sacrifice on our behalf. He stands in our place, bears the wrath of God so that we can be safe and secure. The gravity of God's glory is real. It will be revealed in judgment, but it is also revealed in salvation. So what will you do with the gravity of God today? Will you continue in rebellion? Or will you repent and receive salvation. Let us pray. Father, help us to glory in our Redeemer. Not in our own accomplishments, but in His accomplishments. The accomplishment that He made on the cross for our sin. Help us to glory in our Redeemer and not in our guilt. Help to lift our guilt by lifting our eyes to Your Son who was lifted up on a cross to deliver us. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.